Amen. Thank you all so much. Um, I was thinking this morning that one of the great things about coming to a church like Sharon Heights is how you so regularly get to see people be faithful. We just saw our, 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 our worship team, our musicians, lead us in music and play their instruments. And those are the same people, more or less, that you're going to see do that next week. And the same people that were doing it last week. And the same people probably that'll be doing it six months from now. And it's nice in a world where nobody sticks to anything at all. It's nice to be able to come somewhere and see people just do something and stick with it, isn't it? Because we really do live in a world that just doesn't seem to value faithfulness or prize loyalty anymore. I mean, marriages are lasting shorter you know, than ever. People don't commit to jobs anymore. They change careers every six to eight months, it seems like. People you know, even hop in and out of churches, and that's just the world that we live in. People don't value loyalty. Loyalty has gone out of fashion like your dad's members-only jacket. It's just not in style anymore. And if, if you want to find faithfulness and, and loyalty in this world, then you need to buy a dog because that's, that's about where it's at. That's about the only place you're going to find any real loyalty in this world. And sometimes I think we even begin to believe that God is not faithful to us anymore. Is God really committed to his people? No matter what. No matter what they've done, no matter where they are, no matter what they're facing, is God really faithful? I want to tell you this morning that you cannot understand the message of the Bible. And you cannot really comprehend the heart of God. And you cannot even begin to understand the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ until you understand that God is always faithful. He is always faithful. And Scripture is punctuated with these statements that give us confidence in the faithfulness of God. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse number 9. The Lord tells the people of Israel, He says, I am the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Even, He says, to a thousand generations. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter number 2 and verse number 13 that God is faithful. Even if we are faithless, He remains. He remains faithful. Hebrews 10.23 makes the point that our confident commitment to follow the Lord comes from our understanding that God is promised. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For God who makes promises, He keeps every one that He makes. And in the book of Lamentations chapter 3, the prophet Jeremiah wrote that God is faithful, His compassions never fail, and His mercies are new every morning, and great is His faithfulness. But, while we may know that's true, or at least hope that's true, that doesn't always fit in our experience of God, does it? Because there are times in our lives when it seems like God is not being faithful, or at least we can't sense God's faithfulness. We know what it's like to make mistakes and to fail we know what it's like to squander our potential. We know what it's like not to keep our word. And we look at our lives in the middle of the mess that we've made of them and we say, is God really faithful to me now? We know what it's like sometimes to go through life and face circumstances that we could not control, circumstances that we would not choose 
to see the disappointments of life start to poison the joy in our hearts and we become bitter, frustrated people wondering, where is God at in the middle of this? He says he loves me and he says he's faithful to me, but if he's really going to stick with me, where is he at? And all of us know what it's like to live in a world that seems like it's spinning out of control. Because the most powerful people in the world who think they are in control, they seem to be against God, seem to be against his work in the world, seem to be living contrary to his word. And we think, well, where's God in the middle of that? Where is God when he seems to be invisible? Where is God when you can't find him? Where is God when you really need him? How do I reconcile that with what the Bible tells me about a God who will never quit and a God who will never fail? And a God who will never walk out. And a God who is so stubborn that once he starts, he will never quit no matter what. How do I bring those two things together? Well, to answer that question for us here at Sharon Heights, I want to spend this month and next month examining the faithfulness of God from two incredible ladies in the Old Testament. So we're going to study the book of Ruth and then the book of Esther together over the next few Sunday mornings. And these two incredible ladies are faithful for the most part. But they, more importantly, experience and see the faithfulness of God in the most unbelievable of circumstances. And in the most unlikely of places. Now, these two books have a lot in common. The book of Ruth and the book of Esther, those are the only two books in the entire Bible that are named after women. And the women are the primary protagonists in those stories. But the book of Ruth is written about an immigrant woman named Ruth who is so poor at the beginning of the book that she has to beg for food. Whereas Esther is written about a woman who is queen, who is navigating the halls of power. Historically, the two books occur not quite, but the better part of a thousand years apart, as Ruth comes right before the beginning of the monarchy in the history of Israel, and Esther comes sometime afterwards. The two books are are different stories. They have different drama, different characters, and different tension. But underneath everything you see is you see that God is faithful. But we're going to begin today in the book of Ruth to begin understanding the faithfulness of God even when people aren't faithful. So take your Bible and turn with me to Ruth chapter number 1. And we're going to begin reading in verse number 1. Ruth chapter number 1 and Verse number one. And we are going to take today a really good look at a really bad idea. Let's read Ruth chapter one and verse one together. You could keep your seat this morning if you'd like to. The Bible says this In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, if you need a little help this morning. The days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. That was a really bad idea. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Ruth chapter 1 verses 1 through 5. Thanks be to God for the gift of his word. Now, 
A lot of people have rightly said that the book of Ruth is the Bible's version of a Cinderella story. That it truly is a rags-to-riches story about an immigrant from Moab who ends up finding love and finding redemption and finding a new start in her romance and then marriage to a wealthy man by the name of Boaz. This is a story that is about family. This is a story that's about friendship. This is a story that highlights the Old Testament values of justice and kindness. This is, guys, sorry, this is a love story. This is a story that it tells us the, the, the story, in some ways, of the nation of Israel. But this is a story about real people. This is a story about people who are trying to figure out, where's our next meal going to come from? This is a story of people who are falling in love. story of people who are thinking, how can I get this guy to marry me? This is a story of... People that are romantically linked together. This is a story of people that are moving from one place to another. This is the story of normal, ordinary people living a normal, ordinary life. But underneath all of this story is the extraordinary, redemptive faithfulness of God. It is God's commitment to His people that He is going to bless and He is going to redeem no matter what. That He is going to lead His people from brokenness Two blessings because he is a good and a gracious and a faithful God. In fact, if you read the book of Ruth, you can look ahead a few chapters and see the very last word of the book in Ruth chapter number 4 is the word David. The word David. I think historically the purpose of the book of Ruth was probably written as David starts to rise to power as the second king of Israel. And if Ruth, which is David's great-grandmother, if she was a Moabite from a different country, there would be people that would question David's legitimacy to reign because he has a foreign great-grandmother. And so maybe at least in some part, he's not totally Hebrew. And the book of Ruth is written probably so that people could see that Ruth came into the big family in the right way and that God was doing something incredible in this story. And what you have in the book of Ruth is this theological declaration that God is a God who is faithful to redeem his people no matter where they start. That he is a God who gives hope to the hopeless. He is a God who brings redemption to people whose lives have been ruined. That he is a God who brings people from deprivation to rest. He is a God who blesses his people and even those who aren't his people when they least see it coming. But, What about those who aren't faithful to him? How does God deal with them? What do their lives look like? Well, that's what we see here in the opening pages and the opening verses of the book of Ruth. We read the story of the man who sets all of the action in motion. A man by the name of Elimelech who in the middle of a famine moved his family away from the covenant people of God, away from the promised land of Israel, and moved them into the pagan nation of Moab. And this was a really bad idea. But today we are blessed because we can look at his bad idea with over 3,000 years between us and him. And we can learn from somebody else's mistakes. And so today we can look at his bad idea and we can find some wisdom to help us that maybe will keep us from making these same kind of bad ideas. And I hope that will help us even if we've made them. As the Bible teaches us this important point today, God does not need our faithfulness, but he deserves it. So let's look at the first piece of wisdom in this passage of Scripture. And I would say it to to you this way, that more often than not, bad ideas come from complicated motives. Bad ideas come from complicated motives. Now, Elimelech 
is going to make the decision to move his family away from Israel. And he's going to die away from Israel. That is a bad idea. And I'm going to show you why as we go forward today. But understand right from the beginning that Elimelech did not start out saying, you know what I'd like to do today? I'd like to make a decision that's going to ruin my life. And nobody starts out in life thinking, you know what I hope I do? I hope I waste 50 or 60 or 70 years. I hope I wreck my family. I hope I just wreak havoc in every single relationship that I have. What is it that motivated Elimelech to make a bad idea? Why do we make dumb decisions? Why do we keep making dumb decisions? Well, there are several things that happen in in the first verses of Ruth that will help us. First, the Bible tells us when the book of Ruth occurs. One of the first words in the book of Ruth is that this happened during the period of the Judges. And so the writer wants us to see the historical setting of the book of Ruth that had occurred during about a 300-year period, uh, which judges ruled the nation of Israel. Now, the book of Judges is the book right before Ruth, and there's overlap here. The book of Judges were these localized regional leaders that God raised up to bring deliverance for the people of Israel. Names like Jephthah, names like Gideon, Samson, and others that God used to bring deliverance. But if you read the book of Judges carefully, you'll find out that even though God did the miraculous through these people, the period of the judges in the history of Israel, it was a dumpster fire on roller skates. Because even when these mighty leaders were working incredible acts of deliverance, they're demonstrating over and over again that they need somebody to deliver them. These saviors need to be saved. And so we read the book of Judges and we're left wondering... When is somebody going to come to fix this? Where is the one true king that will really lead his people? Where is the faithful savior who can finally rescue us from out of this mess? Here's how bad it was. If you read the last chapters of the book of Judges, you'll find that the nation of Israel is teetering on the verge of a civil war. And there's one of the tribes of the nation of Israel, the tribes of Benjamin, that's so hated that none of the other tribes will let the Benjaminites marry their women. And so all these guys from Benjamin, they can't find wives. And so somebody comes up with a bright idea in the book of Judges, and they say, hey, if you want a wife, here's how you get one. There's going to be all these young ladies, the Bible calls them virgins, there's going to be all these young ladies that are going to be dancing around this bonfire out in the woods. And if you really want you a wife, what you do is you hide in the woods, and when they're not paying attention because they're so wrapped up in your party, just spring out of the woods and grab you a woman and run off with her, and now you got you a wife. Now, I'm not an expert on women by any stretch of the imagination. But if your first date is a kidnapping, it's probably not going to go well from there. But the whole period of the Judges is summarized in the very last verse of the book of Judges, which is the very last verse before the book of Ruth begins, Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And every man, everybody did that which was right in his own eyes. That is not just a political statement. That is a statement about the spiritual condition of the people. Everybody had chosen to be their own authority. Everybody was setting their own rules. Everybody had determined that they were best equipped to set the course of their life. And in Ruth chapter 1, we're introduced to Elimelech, and he is a man who is absolutely no different. He's a man who takes his family away from the promised land and away from the worship of God and away from the people of God because he thinks to himself, I am in charge of my life. I am 
free to set the course that I want to make. And there's a lot I could say about that, but I just want to say to you today that Elimelech made a really dumb decision because he was a man of his time. He was thinking just like everybody else around him was thinking. And I want you to hear me today that we are always being pressured by the culture that we live in to think and believe and to love and to hate and to value what the world around us loves and hates and values. The Bible says to us in Romans chapter 12 and verse number 2 that we are not to be conformed to this world. We are not to be pressed into the mold of this world, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Now listen to me today. Some of you are oblivious to the fact that you are being discipled by the culture that you're in right now. We're so used to hearing stuff every day. We're so used to being lied to. We're so used to being immersed into our culture that we do not even realize we're in it. It's like a fish in water. That dude, he doesn't know he's wet. And we don't realize how we are being pressed into the mold of the world around us, but we are. So listen to me very, very carefully today. You are right now being discipled by the culture around you to believe there is no such thing as absolute truth. You are being discipled right now to believe that there is no one, no voice outside of you that has the right to tell you how to live your life. You are being discipled right now to only value other people if they bring value to you. You are being discipled to live for your own pleasure. You are being discipled to make your emotions your God. You are being discipled at this moment in this culture. You are being discipled to embrace a culture of complaint. Where the loudest, most obnoxious voice in the room always gets their way. And so Elimelech makes a dumb decision because he just does what everybody else would do. He is a man of his time. This external pressure made him into who he was. Some of you are making decisions right now thoughtlessly because you are just drifting in the stream of the culture and not realizing how you are being conformed to this world instead of being transformed by another world. That's the external pressure on Elimelech, but there's also internal pressure. At least internal pressure brought, uh, brought along by an external problem. And the problem, we're told in Ruth 1, is that there is a famine in the land. There is food deprivation. There's shortages. There's want and even need. Most of us have never been hungry for more than a couple of hours at a time. I'm getting kind of hungry right now, and if the preacher would ever hush, I'd go eat. But most of us don't really know what it's like to do without. But here's Elimelech. A father with mouths to feed, and there's nothing to feed them. What do you do in that situation? Just think about you. How far would you go to make sure your kids have enough to eat? I mean, let's let's be honest about Elimelech's situation here. If if there's nothing on the table, man, there's probably nothing off the table, is there? Do anything to take care of his kids. But is it that simple? Is it really all that simple? I would submit to you today that it's not that simple. Because hundreds of years before Elimelech lived through this famine, the Lord told the people of Israel through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and other places. But he told them that if in the promised land they were disobedient to God, as they were during the period of Judges, that he would 
bring famine and deprivation and want and lack of resources because of their disobedience. He says there in Deuteronomy chapter number 28, especially verse 23 and 24, the heavens over your head shall be bronze and the earth under you shall be iron. It is not going to rain. There's not going to be any rain from the sky. There's not going to be any agriculture, any produce coming up from the ground. And so I do not fault Elimelech for trying to find food for his family. But I do fault Elimelech for trying to find an external solution to an eternal problem. The problem here is not so much a lack of food. The problem here is a lack of obedience to God. The problem here is not that there's not enough to eat. The problem is there's not enough awareness of who God is and what God expects. And sometimes in life, folks, we make really, really bad decisions. Because we are trying to find quick, temporary solutions that have been caused out of spiritual problems. Sometimes you have marriages where, man, it feels more like a tour of duty in Vietnam than it does a honeymoon in Hawaii. And when you have that conflict, the first thought people have is, how can I get out? How can I find something different? How can I find somebody new? And there's very rarely the thought of, hey, has my sin done something to change the relational dynamics in my marriage? Is there bitterness that I need to work on? Is there anger? Is there unforgiveness? It happens in churches. We need a new church. We need a new preacher. We need a new style of worship. And nobody stops to ask, hey, have we just really left our first love? Have we grown cold on the Lord Jesus? We think we need all of these changes without ever looking into our hearts. In other words, Elimelech made a dumb decision for the same reason we make dumb decisions. He thought he could fix what only God could fix. The only fix for the famine was not moving away from the land of Israel. The only fix for the famine was the people of Israel humbling themselves before God and saying, God, we are broken and we need you to fix us. And friends, until we get to that point, we're going to keep making dumb decisions because we're going to keep trying to fix what only God can fix, thinking we can manage what only God can manage. Bad ideas usually come from complex motives. But the second piece of wisdom I would want you to take from a Limelech story is that bad ideas usually have serious consequences. Bad ideas usually have serious consequences. There's a famine. The Bible tells us in verse number 1 that Elimelech decides to strike out for a better life in Moab. And I take a very negative view of Elimelech's decision, as you can probably tell. But is that fair? Is this really not just a guy trying to feed his family? Should we really be so hard on Elimelech? Well, yes. And here's why. First, the Moabites in Scripture are painted as the constant enemy of the people of God. Earlier in the story of the book of Judges, probably in Elimelech's living memory, the Moabites had enslaved the people of Israel. The Moabites worshipped false gods that demanded child sacrifice. And Elimelech is saying, that's where I want to raise my family. That's strike one. Strike two is that there's nothing in these verses that indicate Elimelech ever prays about this. Or in the context of the Old Testament, he never seeks out a word from a prophet. He doesn't even go to his Sunday school class and say, hey, what do y'all think about this? There's no indication of that at all. So let me just give you a piece of advice and counsel if I can this morning. And that is this. If you are on the verge of making a decision now, that in six months from now you are going to be crying in this altar begging God to forgive you for what you've done, why don't you pray now? All right? 
If you are thinking about making a decision, and in a year from now, you are going to be up in the middle of the night, scouring the pages in your Bible, trying to find hope and help in the mess that you've made, why don't you open your Bible now? If you're going to sit in my office in a couple of years and say, I have ruined my family, why don't you come see me now? And I'm not saying I can help you, but man, I'm saying I'd like to try or find somebody who can. But so often we make decisions without God's input, and then we get mad when God doesn't bless the results of them. So that's strike two. There's no counsel here at all that he sought the Lord. The third strike for Elimelech is that God had already spoken about this kind of thing. He said in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 3 that the people of Israel were not allowed to do what Elimelech and Naomi are going to do and allow their children to intermarry with people like the Moabites. He says it. You shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. Unless you think that's purely racial or purely ethnic, the Lord says, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. It had nothing to do with their skin color. It had everything to do with their heart. And then the Lord says that his anger would be kindled against them and he would destroy his people quickly. Elimelech evidently did not believe those verses. But he lived those verses. And he paid for his decision to walk away from God. So Elimelech makes a really, really bad decision. There are consequences to it. Notice the consequences in the text. It's a fascinating, fascinating story. The Bible says... That in verse 1, he goes to sojourn in the land of Moab. The word sojourn is a word that implies impermanence. That is, he's just going for a while until the rain comes back, until the crop yields improve. He's just going for a little bit. It's a temporary word. And so the day came when Elimelech loaded up the family minivan, got Naomi saddled in, got the boys strapped in their seats, he loaded up and then he went to Moab. But then there came a day when he went to the DMV in Moab and he got his driver's license in Moab. And when they asked for his address, his address was not in Bethlehem anymore. His address was in Moab. He was getting his mail in Moab. He starts to get comfortable in Moab. And through all of that, he never sees where he's heading. But then the Bible says this, that the man who intended to sojourn in Moab, the Bible says in verse number 2, the end of the verse, that they remained there. The word remain is a Hebrew word that means to become. I think the text of Ruth wants us to see not just what Elimelech did, but it wants us to see what Elimelech became. The Bible is much more interested in what we are becoming than it is in what we are doing. So who are you becoming? Are you being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit to become like the Lord Jesus? Or are you being shaped by the pressures and temptations of this world? Are you being remade to be like the Son of God? Or are you just living like everybody else? Is your mind being transformed by Scripture? Or is your mind being guided by sinful desires and sinful impulses? Who are you becoming? Where are, where are you headed today? Elimelech was just trying to make a better life. Where was he really headed? The Bible wants us to stop and think about where are we really headed? Friends, we're all becoming somebody. We're all becoming somebody. We're all headed somewhere. And the best indicator 
of who you will be tomorrow is what you do today. And so, based upon your interaction with the Word of God, your commitment to serve the people of God, your faithfulness in going to the Lord in prayer, the way that you're giving, the way that you're prioritizing your money, the way that you are spending your time, who are you going to be tomorrow? Who are you becoming? I want to tell you who Elimelech is becoming. And I want to reintroduce into our vocabulary at Sharon Heights a good old Bible word that many of us have forgotten. I heard this word in church all of the time as a kid growing up. And some of you did too. But I have not heard it in years. In fact, I can't remember the last time I heard somebody use this word in a sermon, use this word in conversation, use it in church. But it's a good Bible word. It's Proverbs chapter 14, verse number 14. You ready for it? The backslider in heart will be filled with the fruit of his ways. I grew up in churches where they believed everybody was a backslider. They did, buddy. They believed everybody was a backslider. Nowadays, we don't believe anybody is a backslider. I just want to say today, some of y'all are backsliders. Some of y'all are not where you used to be in your relationship with God. You're not where you used to be in your commitment to serve Him. You're not where you used to be in your faithfulness to walk with Him. You are not where you used to be in your relationship with God. You are not where you ought to be and you are not where you could be. Why? Because you slid back. And you are a backslider. Elimelech is the prototypical biblical example of a backslider. Of somebody who slid from where God wanted him to be. And his family pays the price for it. He pays the price for it. The man set out thinking that he was going to build a better life in Moab. And listen to me today. He's still there. I'm just going to visit for a while. But in modern day Jordan somewhere, he's still buried in the ground. He became part of the country where he lived. And then his family is left behind to carry on. Think about what Elimelech does. The trajectory that he puts his family on here. He moved to Moab. There came a day when he enrolled his sons in Moab High School. There came a day when they brought home Moabite girlfriends. And then there came a day when they went to wherever they went to do it, Justice the Peace maybe. They had Moabite weddings. And in his sons marrying Moabite women... That meant that Elimelech's grandsons were going to be raised in a home where the God of Israel now has rivals. It meant that his grandchildren would be raised in a home where they were going to hear about gods that did not exist. And Elimelech was forbidden to worship. It meant that his grandchildren would be more like Moabites than they were Israelites. What does it mean for his great-grandchildren? What does it mean for their children? The decisions you make today are going to impact people in your life downstream from you that you are never going to meet. The decisions that I make in my life are going to impact my great-grandchildren. My decisions, whether I raise my family faithfully among God's people or whether I don't. Whether I fill my home with joy in the presence of the Lord or whether I don't. Whether I saturate their lives with Scripture or whether I saturate it with 
the truth of the world or my own ideas. That is going to impact the, 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 the people my children grow up to be. And in developing the people they are going to grow up to be, it's going to impact the children that they raise one day. And the children that they raise one day. We need to realize, folks, that today counts for tomorrow. And right now counts for eternity. Elimelech made little decisions that had big consequences in the lives of the people that loved him most. And he decided that he was going to gamble away the future of his family for selfish, short-sighted gain instead of doing the hard spiritual work of changing his life. And that's miserably depressing, isn't it? I mean, this has been the most depressing sermon. I know I've heard in a long time. So at this point, I'm ready, frankly, to throw some flowers on Elimelech's grave and to move on to something better. So let's do it. The third piece of wisdom I would give you from this passage of Scripture. Passage of Scripture. Bad ideas usually have and come from complicated, complex motives. Bad ideas usually have serious consequences. But third, I want to tell you today, bad ideas can still result in happy endings. Bad ideas can still result in happy endings. After Elimelech dies, we're told that his wife Naomi, who we will talk about next week, Lord willing, his wife Naomi is left to pick up the pieces. Somebody is always left behind to pick up the pieces. And his wife Naomi is left behind to pick up the pieces. And she ends up with her two sons married to two Moabite women, and then her sons die. And then it's just her and her daughters-in-law, and they have to figure out what's next. Thankfully, in verse 6, they hear that God has visited his people back in Bethlehem, and they decide to pull up their stakes and take the long journey back home. And it sets in motion the story and the plot of the book of Ruth, how this widow from Moab, with nothing to her name, but the wrong skin color, but the wrong God, but the wrong choices, and a broken heart, how this widow is eventually going to be swept up into a story of grace that has changed the story of the world because it is the story of Jesus. And why does any of that matter? It means that in spite of Elimelech's unfaithfulness, God in his redeeming grace took this man's failure and he swallowed it up in grace and he did something great in spite of this man's unfaithfulness. Elimelech walked away from home and he walked away from God as far as I can tell. And he walked away from the nation of Israel. But God still refused to quit. God said, I'm still going to birth hope into this story. And I'm still going to birth salvation into this world. What does it mean for us today? It means today that God's faithfulness can always overcome our failures. That God does not need me to be faithful. But God deserves that I'm faithful. Because God is a faithful God who is doing something for Elimelech's family. In spite of Elimelech's choices. That his grace was greater than Elimelech's sin. So let me say to our backsliders like Elimelech that are here this morning. Our God is still God. And our God is still good. And the Bible still says in Romans chapter 5 and verse number 20. That thank God his grace is still good greater than our sins. And Paul wrote in 1 
there, 2 Timothy 2, that our God is faithful to His people even when we are faithless to Him. And I can tell this morning that by the way some of you are interacting with this servant, that you've never made a mistake in your life, that you don't carry any shame and you don't carry any guilt. But for those of us that have lived in Moab and for those of us that have gotten our mail at the devil's mailbox and for those of us that have been rescued by the hand of grace, thank God we know what it's like to worship a Savior whose grace is greater than our sins, whose goodness is better than our failures, and who has said to us at our worst, I will still give you my best. Now, do not misunderstand me today. Elimelech's decisions were serious. They were wrong. They were costly. And he did not love, and he did not live to see the fruit of God's grace at work in his life. But God still loves to rescue people at their worst. And the same road that took him out of Bethlehem, it would have took him back. If he would have looked around and realized one day, there's more of Moab in me than there is Israel in me. And I want to go back to where I used to be. He could have came home anytime. I was reading, preparing this sermon, uh, some words from an old Bible commentator named J. Vernon McGee. And he said that this family, it's a perfect description of Elimelech's family. He said that they were a prodigal family. That's exactly what they were. And I read that and I thought, that's exactly right. And our God is a God who makes a seat at his table for prodigals when they come home. And this family eventually is going to make the hard trip home. And God does the incredible in response to their sin. In response to their backsliding, God pours blessings on top of their head. Why in the world does he do that? Well, forgive me for the lack of perhaps theological precision, but here's why. Because he can't help it. It's who he is. It's what he loves to do. He loves to rescue. He lives to redeem. He dies to save. It's who the God of the Bible has revealed himself to be to us. And so today I want you to know that whatever mess you've made of your life, you are not a lost cause. Whatever choices you've made that have caused relational damage or spiritual trauma or personal heartache, however messy your marriage might be, however many divorces might be behind you, even if your kids will not return your phone call, even if your credit is a wreck and your body is diseased, our God is a God who loves to swallow up our sin in His grace. Folks, this book tells me that Samson's greatest victory came in the middle of his greatest defeat. This book tells me that one day King David had an affair with a woman named Bathsheba. And yet God used that affair to bring Solomon into the world. And from Solomon, the Lord Jesus. This is what God does. So that even if we can't do anything but bring our bad decisions and our bad ideas to him and say, Jesus, help me. That's enough. That's enough. And the Lord will answer and the Lord will respond. But... Here's the whole point. I, I've, I've told you everything I've told you to tell you what I'm going to tell you in the next three minutes. All the rest of that stuff was just, just background. This is the sermon today. If, if God really is faithful like that, then we should be faithful to Him. This proves, the book of Ruth proves that God deserves our faithfulness. He deserves the kind of faithfulness that Elimelech never gave him. He deserves the kind of faithfulness that we too frequently give him, too infrequently give him. 
Because Elimelech looks around. The beginning of the book of Ruth. He says, we don't have enough food to eat. We don't have any jobs. We've got no hope. We've got no future here in Bethlehem. And we've got to fix it. We've got to do something to change it. And it's because he did not really grasp and believe in the faithfulness of God that he is unfaithful. And at the root of all of our unfaithfulness to God is always a belief that God will be unfaithful to us. Look back over your life at the dumbest decisions you've made and really think about it and you will see that deep down under the decision was the doctrinal and theological problem that you did not believe God was really faithful to you. He's not going to provide me what I want. He's not going to give me what I need. He's not going to take care of me. And so I need to do it myself. Martin Luther said it perfectly when he said it this way. He said, the sin underneath all our sins is to trust the lie of the serpent that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ and must take matters into our own hands. And that's what we do. It's how we live our lives, just like a Elimelech, with one bad idea snowballing into another bad idea until it kills us. But if we could ever see that God's faithfulness is bigger than our failures, then we should step back and say, man, I can really trust Him no matter what. I can go no matter where he leads. I can do whatever he expects. I can follow him no matter what the cost. And I can rely on him even when I have nothing. Because he is so faithful that he will take even my worst mistakes, swallow them up in his grace, and make something beautiful out of my disaster. If he does that, he's worthy of your trust today. He doesn't need it. He can still redeem and do great things without your trust. But if he can redeem, and if he does redeem, he deserves your trust. He deserves your trust. So let me talk to the backsliders this morning. You ready to come home? You ready to say, I'm tired of doing it my way? I'm tired of living on my own. I'm tired of the consequences of it. I don't want to throw my future and the future of my family away because of my decisions. And I want to walk faithfully with the Lord. Then come home today. Come home today. No matter how much baggage or wreckage you have to bring with you, bring it to the Lord Jesus and say, Jesus, help me. And he will. He absolutely will. In ways you could not possibly begin to believe today. You don't have to stay where you are. And Limelech did not have to die in Moab. He didn't have to see the wreckage in his family. And you don't have to either. You can experience a new start and a new beginning. Because that's exactly what starts to happen in Ruth chapter 1, verse number 6. A dead end turns into a new beginning. That's what God does for us. He takes the dead end disasters of our life. And in His redemptive kindness, He gives us new beginning after new beginning after new beginning. And that starts when we grasp His faithfulness and we say, Lord, I can hide myself under your shadow no matter what. And you're going to take care of me. Let's stand together today as we... Prepare to sing this song that's going to remind us of the faithfulness of God. And I would like today to have just every head bowed and every eye closed if we could. I don't want anybody looking around as we prepare for this final moment of our service. And I want to ask you, and just ask you to raise your hand if this is you. How many of you would raise your hand and say, I don't like the person I'm becoming? If I look at my habits, if I look at my heart, just say, I don't like the person I'm becoming. Would you raise your hand today? I see hands going up today for people I didn't expect to respond that way. I just don't like the person I'm becoming. How many of you would raise your hand today and say, 
Brother Jesse, just to be honest, I'm a backslider. And I'm not where I used to be. I'm not where I want to be. I see your hands today. And I'm going to pray for you. How many of you are here today and you say, you know, in my heart I want to be walking faithfully with the Lord. I I, I brought it to Jesus and, and I know that He forgives me because He said He would. But I need, I need to see His grace. I need to feel His faithfulness. And I need that new start. Would you raise your hand today? We've got hands going up all over the building. What I'm going to ask you to do is we prepare to sing this song about our Father's great faithfulness to us. I'm going to ask you to come out of your seat. And I'm going to ask you to come pour your heart out to God in this altar. And say, Lord, you know the mess I'm in. You know the mess I've made. God, I want to bring my heart. I want to bring my mess to you. And Lord, I want you to make it into something great. I want you to do with it, Lord, what only I can. Because what we do in life is we take God's blessings and we turn them into a mess. God takes the mess we make and He turns it into a blessing. He can do that for you today. Let me pray for you and then you slip out if you need to come. Father, thank you for this word you've given us today. I pray, God, that you would use it to transform us. That you would do in us what was never done in Elimelech. That you would help us, God, to be a people who realize that we can trust you no matter what. God, help us to live. Help us to live as if we do that. Help us to be faithful to you because we see and know your faithfulness to us. Change hearts and lives and do your work, we pray in Jesus' name.